0: La truth is mightier than Le Pen. McCarthy and Green may not recognize the truth. You can't handle the truth and can JD Mandel win in Ohio? That's the real truth on the political junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. I like to you, and think to me, I don't care how you
1: quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy,
2: vote for Kennedy. We'll come out on top, Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, because they're the ones to
0: lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 387 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. There's still just over six months to go before the election, and nothing has changed the conventional wisdom that Republicans are going to capture control of the House. Not only does history show that likelihood, the party in the White House almost always loses House seats in the midterm, but President Biden's numbers are sinking and Democrats don't seem to have an answer to stem the tide. Yet there has been no shortage of embarrassing and seemingly damaging incidents involving Republican House members, starting with the leader. Last week, the New York Times reported that in the aftermath of January 6th, Kevin McCarthy told his leadership team that he was going to tell President Trump he needed to resign his office because his actions were indefensible and because Congress was likely going to impeach and remove him. Even if McCarthy did feel that way back then, he clearly doesn't now. He's among Trump's top defenders. But McCarthy furiously denied the Times report, calling it totally false and wrong, and his staff continued to state that the reporting was baseless. McCarthy's denial became an outright lie just hours later, when the Times released a recording of what McCarthy told his colleagues. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation you should do Um I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it,
1: but I don't know. I know this is not uh, fun, I know this is not great, I know this is uh, very tough, but what I want to do, especially through here, is uh, I don't want to rush things. I want everybody to have all the information needed.
0: Um, I've had it with this guy. Uh, What he did is unacceptable. Um, Nobody can defend that, and nobody should defend it. No one has worked harder standing up for Trump and making excuses for Trump than Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be the next Speaker of the House and would likely attain that position if and when Republicans take the chamber. Trump has been pretty much forgiving on this latest episode, but no one thinks the former president would ever forget a slight. Trump may be fine for now, but when it comes to the vote for the House leadership, probably in December, it will be interesting to see if he has some payback in mind, like by urging the election of someone else for Speaker. Does anyone really think he's forgotten what McCarthy said about him on the House floor last year, shortly after the violence at the Capitol? In that famous speech, McCarthy is arguing against Trump's impeachment. However, that doesn't mean the president is free from fault. The president bears responsibility for
2: Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. Accept his share of responsibility, quell the brewing unrest, and ensure President-elect Biden
0: is able to successfully begin his term. Add that to what he said about Trump in private. So far, his Republican colleagues are behind him. They may be stunned at how easily he was caught in a lie, One Republican who couldn't believe how McCarthy let himself get thrown by this told me he should have pulled a Marjorie Taylor Greene memory lapse, more of that in a minute, and simply said he did not recall saying what he said. Let's not forget, this is a party where half its lawmakers stand behind the lie that the election was stolen from Trump. Trump himself spent much of his presidency lying about one thing or the other. So another lie by its leader in the House is not going to change much the greater damage is if it turns Trump against him, foiling his bid to become Speaker. As for the observation that his GOP colleagues are staying loyal to him, let's see if there's any fallout from the latest news, as per Wednesday's Times, where McCarthy is also heard on tape voicing concern about right-wing Congress members Matt Gates, Mo Brooks, Lauren Boebert, and others, and suggesting they lose their Twitter accounts. Back to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Some voters in her northern Georgia congressional district are trying to bar her from seeking re-election, arguing that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment disqualifies candidates who engage in insurrection, such as what occurred on January 6, 2021. Green has a long history of saying or suggesting inflammatory things about freedom and the role of the citizenry against the tyrannical government. She even called for Trump to declare martial law in a bid to keep him in office.
3: We can't allow this just to just to be gone, you know, just to let it go. You can't allow it to just transfer power peacefully like Joe Biden wants and allow him to become our president because he did not win this election. It's being stolen and the evidence is there.
0: But when she testified under oath about her actions, her memory seemed to fail her.
4: In fact, you think that Speaker Pelosi is a traitor to the country,
3: right? Uh, you're, I'm not answering that question. It's speculation. And you've, it's hypothetical. You've, you've, you've said
4: that, haven't you, Ms. Green, that she's a traitor to the country?
3: No, I haven't said that.
4: Okay. Put up. I mean, it's Exhibit 5, please.
3: We're, we're, oh, no, wait. Hold on now. I believe by not upholding the uh, se- securing the border, that that violates her oath of office.
4: And in those meetings, you discussed with him your advocacy for the idea that there should be martial law declared in the United States.
3: No, I don't recall ever discussing
4: that. Are you saying it didn't happen, or are you are saying you don't recall one way or the other?
3: I don't recall ever discussing that.
4: Okay. You can answer the question.
3: I don't recall.
4: Um, did you ever advocate for martial law prior to the inauguration of Mr. Biden? with any member of the White House staff that was part of the Trump administration?
3: I don't recall.
4: When did you first uh, become aware that there were going to be large demonstrations in DC on the 6th? I don't recall. And who put it on your calendar? I don't know. Somebody on your staff, I take it? I have no idea. I
3: don't know. I do not recall that, no. I don't recall. I don't remember. I don't think so. I don't recall the exact days. I don't think so. I don't recall that at all. I don't know. I don't recall that was the video, but I don't recall.
0: Thanks to MSNBC for its montage of I can't recall responses. And leave it to a late-night comedian to offer some help for her memory problems. This fake commercial was on ABC's Jimmy Kimmel Live.
4: Ms. Green, did you advocate to President Trump to impose martial law as a way to remain in power? I don't recall. So you're not denying you did it, you just don't remember? I don't remember.
3: Are you or a loved one struggling to remember whether you incited a deadly insurrection? I do not recall. I have no idea. I don't know that. Have you forgotten whose executions you've called for? I just don't remember. I don't recall. Have you left the house and forgotten to turn off your Jewish space laser? No, I do not remember that. Do you find yourself getting confused or lost? Okay, I think we're gonna have to ask for for directions. Now there's help. Treasonal. <laughs> Treasonal treats memory loss by patching up holes in the brain caused by overexertion. Call your anti chiropractor if you have waited longer than four hours for JFK Jr. to come back from the dead. Treasonal, get back to destroying your country with confidence. From the makers of Nasonex, horse medication for people. Oh, no, wait.
4: Go on now. Available at Walgreens.
0: And while we're on the subject of House Republican rising stars, what can I say about Madison Cawthorn that hasn't already been said? The latest news? Well, Politico posted some photos of Cawthorn dressed or partially dressed in a black bra and racy underwear which the congressman said were taken at a party on a cruise vacation before he was first elected in 2020. I could care less what Cawthorne likes to wear at parties, but it kind of stinks of hypocrisy given the fact that he needed to deliver what was described as an anti-trans speech on the House floor earlier this month. Private behavior for all, not for some. Less innocent is the news that on Tuesday, Cawthorn had a loaded gun in his carry-on bag when he was attempting to board a flight in Charlotte, apparently the second time that's happened in the past year. Add that to his now dismissed claim that he was invited to an orgy by members of Congress he looked up to, and that one or more lawmakers used cocaine. It was then when Kevin McCarthy privately dressed down Cawthorn and said he was trying his patience because we know how important the sanctity of Congress is to Kevin McCarthy. State Senator Chuck Edwards, one of Cawthorne's Republican rivals in the May 17th primary, who has been endorsed by Senator Tom Tillis and leaders of the state legislature, released this ad in response to Cawthorne's behavior.
2: Here in the mountains, we don't seek the limelight. We put our heads down and we get to work. I'm Chuck Edwards, and that's what I've done in Raleigh balancing budgets, cutting taxes, outlawing sanctuary cities, and protecting the Second Amendment. And it's what I'll do in Washington. If you want a celebrity, go watch the Kardashians. But if you want a proven conservative that will fight and win, then I'm your man. I'm Chuck Edwards, and I approve this message.
0: Later in the show, we remember Utah's Orrin Hatch, who is the longest-serving Republican senator in history. And that leads to this week's trivia question. Who is the Senate's second longest serving Republican in history? Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner, as always, will get a fabulous vintage political junkie button. Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll give you the answer to last week's trivia question later in the show, so stay tuned. the January 6th insurrection and shortly after, there was some thought that Donald Trump's influence in the Republican Party was nearing the end. The shocking scenes of pro-Trump rioters breaking into the Capitol building, beating police officers, and ransacking offices led some GOP members of Congress to distance themselves from him. But that distancing didn't last long. On the contrary, Trump's complete takeover of the Republican Party was underway And with the rank-and-file solidly behind him, the once courageous lawmakers fell in line. Now these candidates, some of whom were never-Trumpers in 2016 and anti-Trumpers on January 6, have been falling all over themselves to win Trump's endorsement. With it hard to distinguish conservative Republicans from each other on the primary ballot, it's the backing of Trump that could make a difference, and the candidates have been going all out to get it. Trump has made two Senate endorsements recently that have the potential to be game-changers. He's backing J.D. Vance in Ohio for the seat of retiring Republican Rob Portman, and he's endorsed Dr. Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania for the seat of the departing Republican Pat Toomey. Both endorsements have proven to be controversial, but they both show that Trump is the main event in this year's GOP primaries. Jack Pitney is a politics professor at Claremont Mechanic College, and an authority on the Republican Party. His latest book is Un-American, The Fake Patriotism of Donald J. Trump. Jack, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for being here. And and I think the, the, the answer to this is obvious, but, but have you ever seen a former... <laughs> it's one of those obvious questions. Have you ever seen a former president who not only remains active in his party's future, but has decided to pick winners and losers in primaries. You know, that so many of his endorsements have to do whether or not they back his lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him. This is
2: unprecedented. You've had former presidents be active in politics. Uh, several former presidents have been. President Obama uh... has campaigned for democrats uh... some presidents have taken a low profile george w bush after he left office uh... generally did not get involved in politics he could read the polls as well as anybody and probably figured he wasn't going to be doing republicans a lot of good But Trump is different in that he's still trying to control the party, uh, which he does at the Republican National Committee through Ronna Romney McDaniel, minus the Romney part, and uh, through his intervention in primaries. And so we are way out in the blue in a situation that we just haven't seen before.
0: It wasn't even that, that Trump was popular. He was... He was basically uh, uh, under 50% popularity throughout his presidency. He was, It's not like Ronald Reagan, who won 49 states uh, when he left office. And it seems to be personal. That's the thing that really gets me, that, that if you've done some, not only if you've committed some kind of slight, because as for all we know, a lot of these guys like J.D. Vance was anti-Trump in 2016. Seems like basically everything is a referendum on how they feel about January 6th and and the days after that. That's right.
2: And uh, the key to Trump's good graces is groveling. And in the case of somebody like J.D. Vance, somebody who was previously anti-Trump, he has to grovel a lot. And Trump likes that. A similar dynamic is going on with Kevin McCarthy after the revelation of things that he said about Trump in private. He's had to grovel even more, and Trump is fine with the groveling. Uh, so this is unique among presidents. We've had presidents uh, taking ideological positions, presidents uh, who have uh, championed their parties, but not a president who specialized in receiving
0: groveling. And I'm also thinking that, that a lot of the endorsements are not only about seeing somebody win, but like I'm thinking of Liz Cheney in the primary in, in Wyoming in August It's make, to make sure, of course, that Liz Cheney is defeated. Yeah, and that also is unusual, uh, that you
2: have him uh, getting involved. Not that he really cares who represents Wyoming, as long as it's not. Liz Cheney, uh, and this is intensely personal. Uh, Liz Cheney is even more conservative than Donald Trump is, but that isn't what he cares about. He just
0: cares about her position on January sixth. Exactly, and Cheney's main opponent in the in the primary was, was a never Trumper in twenty sixteen. But basically, you know, what have you done for me lately? And the thing with Ohio, though, that's interesting. I mean, you think of J D Vance; he said some famously. Horrible things about Trump in 2016.
2: Uh, That's right. And, uh, you know, some of them have been coming to light even more recently. Uh, But that gave him even more incentive to grovel to Trump. And he's been taking some uh, pretty... Uh, unusual positions on the eve of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. He famously said he didn't really care about Ukraine. Uh, Whether that's helpful in the general election in a state that actually has a fair number of Ukrainian Americans, that's
0: another issue. Yeah, and plus the fact that if you looked at the Republican field for the seat of, you know, Rob Portman is giving up Nearly everyone was was pro Trump. I mean, they all they all traveled to Mar-a-Lago to get an audience with him. He actually didn't have to endorse anybody. One,
2: uh, Vance has to grovel the most, and also he's a celebrity, and that also is part of what's going on uh, with Dr. Oz. Uh, Trump likes celebrity, uh, and that's a a plus in the endorsement race. But even if uh, they don't win the primary, the winner of the primary is going to be pro-Trump.
0: So from his perspective, it's a win-win. But what's interesting, I think, especially interesting about Ohio is that he's butting heads with Club for Growth. Now, the Club for Growth is backing Josh Mandel, the former state treasurer, and it was Donald Trump Jr., basically, who went to – David McIntosh and the Club for Growth and said, look, lay off, you know, lay off, because we're backing Vance. And by them pushing against the Club for Growth, the Club for Growth started spending even more money on behalf of Mandel and anti-Vance. So it's really, it's a test of wills almost in Ohio, which is unusual in this endorsement game. Uh,
2: That's right. Even though Mandel uh, really, really wanted Trump's endorsement, uh, the Club for Growth has a somewhat different uh, calculation given that their whole uh, mission involves ideology. Uh, And so uh,
0: it's not surprising that they're behaving in a different way than a candidate would. There's no litmus test here. Really, Really, the litmus test is all about Donald Trump and not whether you were a true conservative six years ago or six minutes ago, right? Yeah, this
2: is a a broader problem for Republicans. The debates are about uh, uh, loyalty to Trump, uh, about personality, Uh, and uh, if and when Republicans get in power, they're very likely to take control of the House, uh, have a better than even chance of getting control of the Senate. What do they do then? I'm old enough to remember uh, the 1980 campaign where Republicans literally have a playbook. Uh, the, the people at Heritage put together a, a literal handbook and that had, uh, you know, was hundreds of pages long with extremely detailed policy prescriptions.
0: And it gave them something to work with. Uh, They don't have anything like that today. I won't go back as far as 1980, but if I go back as far as 1992, I remember in Illinois when Democratic incumbent Alan Dixon, the senator, was in this fierce, ugly fight with one candidate and that allowed a third candidate, Carol Mosley Braun, to win the primary. I'm just wondering, I don't know if this could happen in Ohio, but I'm just wondering if the battle between Vance and Mandel gets so heated and ugly in the Well, we only have less than a week to go, but I'm just wondering if a third candidate possibly could squeak in. Uh, It's possible. I think that's what uh, Mr. Gibbons is hoping for. Somebody obviously told Trump in 2018 that he was a kingmaker because he did, his endorsement over Brian Kemp for Brian Kemp in 2018 did propel him in the Republican primary. His endorsement for Ron DeSantis in Florida in 2018 basically was responsible for DeSantis becoming the nominee and, and, and governor. So, so when, when Trump, does do these endorsements now, like David Perdue over, over Brian Kemp or, um, or picking Mo Brooks in Alabama, sometimes, sometimes, he, you know, sometimes he can misjudge, but at the same time, he picked Congressman Ted Budd in North Carolina, who could well be the nominee. So I think what I'm saying here is, is that there's no rhyme or reason whether Trump is, you know, is going to win or lose, but, but clearly he has the potential for making a big difference with an endorsement.
2: That's right. Uh, an endorsement can be an asset. It, uh, and in the Republican Party, following Trump is, uh, basically necessary in nearly every race, but it isn't sufficient. Uh, In the 5th District of Tennessee, Uh, Morgan Ortegas was endorsed by Trump. In fact, he endorsed her before she even announced her candidacy. Uh, But it turns out she was a terrible candidate, uh, didn't know anything about the district, was embarrassed in a uh, radio uh, interview in which she didn't really know anything uh, about Central Tennessee. And uh, as a result, the state party's executive committee booted her off the ballot. Uh, so this is somebody, had she been plugged into Tennessee politics, really worked at it, uh, learned the district, she probably would be coasting to nomination right now. So
0: uh, again, the Trump endorsement can be helpful, but candidates have to help themselves too. You know, we've been sitting here talking about the pros and cons of the endorsements and, and whether they're mistakes or not, but it's still his party and and he's still the the guy, the go-to guy for leadership in the party, and and that's true in 2022 as well as 2024. Yeah, he, uh, uh, it's
2: uh, Donald Trump's party. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of policy or principle, but uh, the defining principle of the Republican Party uh, is
0: Donald Trump. Jack Pitney is a politics professor at Claremont McKenna College, an authority on the Republican Party, And his latest book is Un-American, The Fake Patriotism of Donald J. Trump. Jack, as always, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Oh, one thing I've got to add (laughs) that happened after my interview with Jack Pitney. In a Sunday rally, Donald Trump was talking about his mental acuity, how smart he is and how dumb Joe Biden is. And then... (laughs) <laughs> he talked about how important his endorsements have become.
1: We've endorsed Dr. Oz. We've endorsed JP, right?
0: JD Mandel, and he's doing great. They're all doing good. They're all doing good. That would be funny if it weren't so sad. Nah, it's both. So don- It's hard to make the case that no state was more crucial in the last election cycle than Georgia. Joe Biden narrowly won the presidential race in the peach state over Donald Trump by 0.2%, the narrowest margin of any state in 2020. It was the first time a Democratic presidential candidate carried the state since Bill Clinton in 1992. Also two Democrats improbably knocked off both Republican Senate incumbents in a January 2021 runoff, upsets that gave Democrats control of the Senate and enabled President Biden to get some of his agenda passed, including the confirmation of the nation's first black female Supreme Court justice. If Georgia was ground zero for politics in 2020 and 2021, it may even be more fascinating to watch in 2022. Stacey Abrams, who came close to winning the governorship four years ago, is trying again. If she wins, she'd become the nation's first ever black female governor. The Republican who defeated her in 2018, Brian Kemp, would love to do it again, but he's being challenged from the right by David Perdue, one of the Republican senators who was unseated in last year's runoff. Perdue was pushed into the race by Donald Trump. David Perdue is a great leader and a wonderful guy. He has my complete and total endorsement.
1: Brian Kemp let us down. We can't let it happen again. Brian Kemp has to be defeated in the Republican primary. And we have somebody who's outstanding and will easily beat Lion Stacey Abrams. She is a disaster for Georgia. She's a disaster for our country.
0: David Perdue must win for the good of the USA. That's for governor. In the Senate race to take on Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock, Trump is all out for Herschel Walker, the former college and professional football star. And we already know about how Trump feels about Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who refused to buy into the lie that Georgia was stolen from Trump and turned down the soon-to-be former president's plea to find some 11,000 votes that would have put him over the top. Congressman Jody Heiss is challenging Raffensberger in the primary and, of course, with Trump's support. Georgia's primary is May 24th, which means almost one more month of nonstop TV commercials. Greg Bluestein is watching them all and covering it all as a political reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's also the author of Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. Greg, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. I'm so happy to be back. Thank you. Well, you know, I ended my intro by talking about the race for Secretary of State. There is no shortage of Republicans from Donald Trump on down who insist Democrats did so well in Georgia in 2020 because of voter fraud. And the Republican legislature has responded by doing what they can to make it more difficult to vote. Give me give us an example of what the legislature accomplished, you know, legislation that Kemp signed.
1: Yeah, well, in 2021, um, Re- the Republican-controlled legislature essentially rewrote Georgia's election laws, and um, you know it was a comprehensive rewrite. So it was far-reaching. There's lots of things that that even Democrats supported, um, but the parts that they did not support are glaring. And among them, um, I think maybe the biggest one gets some of the least attention, but allows the legislature to directly uh, take control of local election boards in limited circumstances. And that could be a very big issue um, going forward. But otherwise, it set tighter windows for the returns of absentee ballots and requests for absentee forms. It limits the number of drop boxes. Um, It makes it harder for outside groups to pass out water and food to people waiting in line and a number of other changes that, you know, oh, and of course requires photo ID for people casting absentee ballots, that might be the biggest, um, the biggest headline of them all. Look, a number of changes that you can't, you know, uh, it's, it would be hard to pinpoint one of them or, or, or several of them um, for any drastic change in the electorate. But if it's a close race, if we're talking about the same margin that divided President Trump and, and, and now President Joe Biden, 11,000 or so votes, any one of these changes... Um, uh, could re- result in a smaller electorate or at least make it harder for as many people to vote in this election.
0: In your book, uh, Flipped, you talk about the intense pressure from Trump on Governor Kemp to overturn the Georgia results. And as we all know, he stood firm. But Kemp is the same guy who Democrats are accused of suppressing the vote in his 2018 race against Stacey Abrams. So I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. I don't mean to be simplistic here or or silly, but but is Kemp, is Kemp a good guy or a bad guy? Well, well, let me ask you another way. I mean, if he was going to do nefarious things to the Democrats in 2018, uh, whether that's true or not, why didn't he stay true to form in 2020? I'm confused about that.
1: You know, this is the big challenge for Democrats right now is that, by contrast, with David Perdue, who is Kemp's um, Republican challenger, former senator, uh, who's running to the far right and running as another supporter of the big lie. By contrast, by comparison, uh, Brian Kemp looks more mainstream, right? He, he looks he looks more um, more modern in a sense. He's not. He is a very conservative governor. But uh, the worry for Democrats here in Georgia is that if Brian Kemp does emerge, that he looks like he could be more agreeable to to, to Democratic voters in that sense. Um, because of that stand against Donald Trump. And look, there's no doubt when, when, when Brian Kemp was Secretary of State, there's all sorts of things that, that upset Democrats. Uh, he tightly adhered to Georgia's election laws. He purged um, uh, the ver- voting rolls of hundreds of thousands of names, um, led to confusion um, for, for voters. He, he pursued this exact match policy that led to thousands of voters' applications going into the pending status. Um, efforts to close down uh, polling precincts, especially in some um, Democratic-controlled counties, I mean, all sorts of things that that unnerved and upset Democrats. But at the same time, did he ever heed to Donald Trump's demands to overturn the election to call a special session? It could have led lawmakers to push for the election to be overturned. Um, did he ever go on air espousing the big lie? No, and um, and and part of that might be the part of that is at least because he understands the job of secretary of state because he was in it for, for almost a decade. So, um, he knew the limits and he knew the laws and he'll say that at at different debates and different venues all around, all around Georgia, when he's asked about Donald Trump's election, he, he won't ever say there was no fraud in Georgia. Um, because frankly, you know, we have individual cases, um, that, that elections investigators have, have, have probed over the years. Um, you know, most of them are, 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 are not, um, They're uh, negligence, right? They're not. uh, They're not criminal intent or anything like that to change the vote. Someone voting for his wife or absentee for his wife, things like that. Uh, But will he ever say there's widespread voting fraud? No, because there's no proof that there is widespread voting fraud.
0: Trump has basically called Kemp every name in the book, and other Republicans, when they're attacked by Trump, they often fall, fall meekly in line. Even though, as Trump, you know, continues to criticize and denounce Brian Kemp. Kemp doesn't respond, and he doesn't respond, and he doesn't change his views, which is fascinating to watch. It is fascinating to watch. His interaction with Trump is is, is very fascinating, and it's going to be a big part of
1: the general election campaign, too, if he emerges, Because you won't hear him kiss the ring. He knows it's it's far too late for that. Um, There was efforts back in 2020 to get the two on the same page again. And really, it was a lot more than election the, the election results. That I think it took the election results to sort of – that was the straw that broke the Campbell's back. But um, they had other fights, right? They had a uh, fight over Kelly Leffler being his appointee for U.S. Senate. They had a fight over his approach to coronavirus. There was also just a general thing that, you know, Kemp was – more reluctant to call Donald Trump up just to banter back and forth than some other Republican leaders like Ron DeSantis down in, down in Florida. That's just not Kemp's personality when it comes to Donald Trump. I think that Donald Trump tended to view he was responsible for Kemp's election and that Kemp owed him. And I don't think Kemp saw it exactly the same way. So there was that as well. But certainly this election stuff in 2020, um, it dissolved the relationship. And right now, yeah, Brian Kemp isn't trying to um, win Donald Trump back because he knows Donald Trump can't be won back. But at the same time, you won't hear him say a bad word about Donald Trump. He's not going to go on the campaign trail and say Donald Trump's a bad guy. He has a very different approach than, say, Brad Raffensperger, who who said that Donald Trump was the author of his own defeat in Georgia because so many Republican voters stayed home in the, in the, uh, in the, in the no, November 2020 election uh, because of all these lies about voter fraud. Um, so he has that different approach because he knows that Uh, If he wants to win a primary, he can't alienate the 70 percent of Georgia Republican voters who still hold Donald Trump in high esteem. And the fact that that Brian Kemp is 20-plus points ahead of David Perdue, despite the fact that Donald Trump is still so beloved by the Georgia GOP electorate, um, says a lot about Kemp's campaign.
0: So I was going to ask you, one, um, what does it say about Trump's influence among Georgia Republicans, or maybe it says nothing, and two... Maybe even more important question: Would a convincing win in the primary by Kemp send a signal that the GOP is going to be united in their what's going to be a tough, you know, tough rematch against Stacey Abrams? I mean, look, Governor Kemp
1: is looking for a, a sweeping mandate. He is looking to shut the door, slam the door, I should say, on David Perdue. In our in the AJC poll, he was at fifty-three to about twenty-six, so huge lead. But the more important number is not twenty-six; it's the fifty-three. Um, because in Georgia, you need to have a majority vote to avoid a a, a runoff, and um, it's not you know Kemp, Kemp has a has a sizable lead, but he he it 's a little close to fifty for his for his
0: comfort Let me switch to the Senate race by most accounts, Herschel Walker is cruising to the Republican nomination, but he refuses to debate his rivals. He says very little on the stump and and basically what he does say is is often pretty much unintelligible. Trump's endorsement power—I mean, I mean, whatever you want to make of Trump—you know—versus you know—in you know, the in the race between Kemp and Perdue, Trump basically created Herschel Walker as a Senate candidate, right?
1: I always say this, and I think it's—I think I believe it's true. But of all the candidates in Georgia that Donald Trump has endorsed. The one who needed the endorsement the least was Herschel Walker because of just his towering name recognition, his towering stature in the minds of many Georgians who grew up hearing stories or watch or watching themselves uh, video of, of him, uh, his prowess on the football field, right? He is, he is a true sports legend. He was a great he's player, really absolutely. But in Georgia, he's like even some. So he's got that going for him. But yeah, I mean, the fact that Donald Trump early on in 2021 sent out a press release saying that Herschel Walker would be unstoppable and essentially promising his endorsement should Herschel Walker get in, froze the field, made it hard for anyone else of, of high stature to get in the race who could really compete with, with, with Herschel Walker. And meanwhile, Herschel Walker's living in Texas. Meanwhile, Herschel Walker's stances on many issues are unknown. Um, and meanwhile, Herschel Walker's untested on the political front. We've never seen him at a campaign rally before. All that stuff was just a, a, a big question mark. And um, it's less of, it's still somewhat of a question mark, it's less of a question mark because we've seen him some now, but he is at 66% in the AJC poll. And I want to say this too, he's not running against a bunch of nobodies. His main competitor is a guy named Gary Black, who is the Agriculture Commissioner of Georgia. He's a statewide elected Republican official who has been elected statewide, not once, not twice, but three times. He's garnered millions of votes. He is a a well-known commodity among Republican circles here in Georgia, but it goes to show you how hard it is to go up against someone like Herschel Walker. Our poll showed Gary Black at just 7% of the vote, and when we asked people his approval rating, about 23 or 24, about a quarter of Republican voters um, approved of Gary Black, but two-thirds had no opinion of him, didn't know enough to form an opinion. So that just shows you how uh, the advantage the Herschel Walker comes in, because his approval rating was at 80%, and only 10% of Republican voters
0: didn't have an opinion of him. Gary Black is a 63-year-old balding white man, and in this commercial, which I really enjoyed, you see him struggling to put on a football mouth guard, a a helmet and shoulder pads, and then, you know, it's almost like a Woody Allen commercial. He's trying to get the shoulder pads over his glasses. Let me play a little bit of that i'm probably not your first choice to compete on a football field but i'm running for the u.s senate because i've scored points for georgia on different fields i've scored for our jobs and economy for food safety and with essential disaster relief now i'm running for the u.s senate because joe biden and Raphael warnock are failing america
2: i'm gary black and i've approved this message because whatever field the fight is on
0: i'll keep scoring and winning for georgia
1: great as that ad was. And he's had a a number of great ads. I mean, that was kind of a a tongue-in-cheek one. But he's also had ads saying that this shouldn't be an autograph tour, that this shouldn't be a coronation of Herschel Walker, that mocking how Herschel Walker hasn't shown up at debates. And a very serious one that pretty much outlined all the Democratic attacks that could be facing Herschel Walker in November, from um, abuse of his spouse and his loved ones to misstating his business record, to blunders on the campaign trail, to confusing statements on his on his political stances, all sorts of issues that will certainly come up in November. And yet he's got no money to put those ads out. So the only way you, you, people like me and you can see them is if we're watching them on, on YouTube or something, right? They're, they're not on the airwaves. There's no significant money behind them. And so only a very small sliver of the electorate has even seen these ads.
0: Plus the millions of people who listen to The Political Junkie, right?
1: Well, I mean, now they've heard it. Yeah. So
0: maybe this will start changing the, <laughs> the the polls. You know something? I mean, I saw a poll Walker up maybe 10 points over Senator Warnock. Now, I understand. We talked about the power of celebrity, and I know that Warnock is probably being dragged down uh, by by President Biden's saggy numbers. Didn't Walker say he was—he talked about graduating at the top of his class, and he didn't even graduate. He dropped he graduate. out to play football. So.
1: Famously dropped out, by the way. That wasn't even like a— it was such a it was a huge news story in the 1980s when he dropped out because he was one of the first college football players to to not graduate and go right to the NFL. But it's, I'll also say this about that poll you mentioned um, at the top of the question: we we here in Georgia, at least in the in, in the political circles, are not taking those hypothetical matchups too seriously now. I know the Warnock campaign is watching everything, but they're also not hyperventilating over it because Senator Warnock has 26 million dollars in the bank and hasn't started spending. Any of that money to attack Herschel Walker yet? You know, there's ads now touting Herschel uh, Raphael Warnock, so there's ads out there that that you know try to elevate his profile and all that. But we haven't seen any significant money being spent from Democrats, at least, tearing down Herschel Walker. So once that goes into effect, we'll see how close these numbers are. But I don't think anyone here thinks that that Senator Warnock will have an easy re-election campaign. He is. I don't know if he's the underdog, but it's looking very tight for him.
0: Walker obviously is not going to debate Gary Black. Can he avoid uh, debating mornock? Uh, he could he avoid it? Yeah, he can
1: avoid it. Will he want to? Will that end up backfiring? Look, we saw um, we saw how that played out for David Perdue against John Ossoff. He looked like a coward. Um, it, it allowed Democrats for the rest of that runoff campaign to to follow david purdue with a purdue chicken sign <laughs> right. and say "bok bok bok," you wouldn't show up and i think it got under david Purdue's skin i think that's one of the reasons he's doing a lot of debates now is because he doesn't want to be called um called a coward all over again i, I think that Herschel walker will end up showing up for debates um it'll be really curious to see if it's multiple debates or what but one thing going for Herschel walker is that expectations will be pretty low the bar will be low you know because he's never been in a debate before and and there's already been so much out there about the missteps he's made. So if he sort of performs to expectations, it'll be a victory for him.
0: Let me ask you one final question. There's a, an ongoing investigation into what Trump attempted to do to fix the vote in 2020. Uh, where does that stand?
1: We're at a crucial point right now. The grand jury in Fulton County is uh, at this taping, uh, readying to convene. And it's widely expected or believed that the Fulton County D.A., Uh, Could very well go forward with some sort of charges against Donald Trump. Um, It's a Fulton County grand jury. It's one of the most democratic, biggest democratic strongholds in Georgia. So, I mean, who knows what the grand jury composition will be? But that, that, you know, that that fact doesn't hurt the DA's, you know, uh, perspective. At the same time, this would be one of the biggest decisions of her professional life. Uh, and she is a veteran prosecutor. She's dealt with murder cases and rape cases and horrible, horrible violence um, that, of course, is, is, is very important trying to bring perpetrators to justice. But she never dealt with a case like this before. That is, um, that is a sweeping and important in terms of a national context that could literally determine whether or not, in some form or fashion, the former president runs again in 2024. So there will be a ton of media attention Um, on the the proceedings that will begin very shortly in Georgia in terms of the grand jury uh,
0: investigation. Greg Bluestein is a political reporter with the Atlanta Journal of Constitution. Greg, I mean, what a year. I hope you have a great time. I know I'll have a great time watching you and reading your stuff.
1: (laughs) Hang in there. And uh, thank you for having me. And I encourage your listeners also to buy the book Flip to catch up on everything that has happened in Georgia up until
0: this point. Greg, thanks so much. Thank you. It's time to reveal the answer, and winner, of our last trivia question, which was... Who was the last defeated candidate for vice president who, after finding themselves out of office, later ran for the House or Senate? The answer? Geraldine Ferraro, the running mate on the unsuccessful 1984 Democratic ticket, led by Walter Mondale, Ferraro later ran for the Senate from New York in 1992, where she lost the primary to Bob Abrams, and again in 1998, losing the primary to Chuck Schumer. And the randomly selected winner is Kathy Anderson of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Kathy wins the coveted Political Junkie button. And don't forget, in addition to this podcast, there are political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all on our website krpoliticaljunkie.com
5: I'm looking for a hard-headed
4: woman One who will take me for myself
1: And if I find my hard-headed woman I won't need
3: nobody else
0: No, 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 no Orrin Hatch, the longest-serving Republican in the history of the Senate, died last Saturday. He was 88 years old and had suffered a stroke earlier in the month. A strong conservative and a tough partisan, he had a reputation of being willing to work across the aisle. His close relationship with the late Ted Kennedy was legendary. But at the same time, as the New York Times obituary said, he blocked fair housing bills with filibusters. He voted against the Equal Rights Amendment. He proposed a constitutional amendment to make abortion illegal. But he wasn't always easy to pigeonhole. He voted against Supreme Court Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, but he voted for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer. As a strong proponent of Clarence Thomas's nomination in 1991, he led the attack on Anita Hill's credibility. He once called the Democratic Party the Party of Homosexuals, and yet he also worked with Kennedy on behalf of programs that would assist AIDS patients. He was first elected in 1976, as Leslie Stahl of CBS News noted at the time.
4: In the state of Utah, a Senate race, uh, CBS News, as Walter said earlier, estimates that uh, Orrin Hatch, a conservative Republican, uh, has won that race with 53 percent of the vote. Orrin Hatch defeated 65-year-old Frank Moss, a veteran congressman, running for a fourth term. It is a major upset. Orrin Hatch is one of those unknowns, a non-politician who, uh, because of that, seems to be defeating the, uh, the kind of person who will be defeating these veterans. Uh, senators all over the West. He, uh, Orrin Hatch got a lot of money from conservative uh, organizations and he is quite uh, right-wing in his attitudes, ran against Washington.
0: Nearly a quarter century later, he made a bid for the 2000 Republican presidential nomination, which went nowhere. When he received one percent of the caucus vote in Iowa, he dropped out and endorsed George W. Bush.
2: It is now clear that there will not be time to build sufficient support for my candidacy.
0: Therefore, I am announcing
2: today that I will no longer seek the Republican nomination for President of the United States. Now, I leave this race with no regrets for having tried. I knew that by getting in late, by raising money from small donors, by refusing
0: public funds, that I was defying conventional wisdom, and the odds were extremely long. He could be very soft-spoken, but he had a temper, as witnessed by his shouting match with Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown. I come from
2: the poor people, and I've been here working my whole stinking career for people who don't have a chance. And I really resent anybody saying that I'm just doing this for the rich. Give me a break. I think you guys overplay that all the time, and it gets old. And well, frankly, you ought, to, you ought to quit it. Mr. Chairman, the public no, a believes a just, I'm not through. Okay. I get kind of sick and tired of it. Mm-hmm. Now, true, it's a nice political play. Well, Mr. Chairman, not true. with all due respect, I get sick and tired of the richest regular people Regular order, in Mr. Uh, Getting richer and regular richer. We do attack Regular order. Middle class. Regular order. And middle, order. Right. over and over, well, and over again. How many second. times do we do this before we learn this? Listen. I've honored you by allowing you to spout off here. And what you said was not right. That's all I'm saying. I come from the lower middle class originally. We didn't have anything.
0: So don't spew that stuff on me. I get a little tired of that crap. Ross Baker is a professor of political science at Rutgers University and a longtime observer of Congress. Ross, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Thanks, Ken. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Orrin Hatch served longer in the Senate than any other Republican in history. He sponsored more bills that were signed into law than any senator in history. But what I have the most trouble in deciphering is who was Orrin Hatch? I mean, how could someone who apparently had a genuine friendship with Ted Kennedy and he worked with him on bipartisan legislation be one of the most conservative members of the Senate? Yes, he was. And um, I, I kind of look at Orrin Hatch's
5: career as really basically falling into two periods, period before 2010 and after 2010. And what was significant about 2010 was the nominating caucus of the Utah Republican Party, which refused to endorse Bob Bennett, who was an incumbent Republican senator from utah and conservative uh, and conservative by any measure right exactly and i think it put the fear of god in, in or in hatch and the second was something that actually occurred a bit earlier and that was the vote on the troubled asset relief plan of president george w bush which um which which hatch supported and apparently he got a huge amount of blowback from conservatives in Utah about that. And these two events occurring more or less the same time, I think, signaled to Hatch a, a course correction, uh, which was reinforced by the election of uh, of Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump was not Hatch's first choice, but I think he realized that he had to accommodate himself Uh, to Trump, and as chairman of the Finance Committee, of course, uh, was responsible, materially responsible, for the enactment of the 2017 um, Trump tax bill, which, of course, so heavily favored uh, wealthy Americans and corporations. You know, I I think there was a kind of golden age, if you will, of Warren Hatch's career, and it was the period in which he co-sponsored the um, Children's Health Insurance program, to the CHIP program, um, which was, you know, a very, very mainstream kind of thing to do. Um, but, but he would offset that with other votes that sort of went to his conservative bona fides, uh, such as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which I think is a terrible piece of legislation. Um, and, um, uh, but, you know, he would, uh, again, you know, during this, during this golden age, he worked Worked with Henry Waxman, who was then the chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, on a bill to improve access to generic drugs.
0: Waxman being a liberal de- California Democrat.
5: Yes, but very much of the very definition of a liberal California Democrat. Um, so so he, was, he was very good at sort of, you know, if he did something that, that looked like it might be interpreted by his constituents in Utah as being excessively... Liberal, he would find something to offset it with. So he would, you know, so you, he worked with Waxman on the access to generic drugs, but he was a vocal op- opponent of Obamacare. Uh, I mean, he wasn't alone among Republicans. Obviously, I mean, there was you know a huge uh, wall of opposition among among Republicans. Um, so uh, you know, he he you know he kind of understood that you know in terms of working with. With Democrats on anything, he, he had to find an offset um, that was going to enable him to explain um, that, that that particular vote. And, and the relationship with, with with much has been made of his relationship with with Ted Kennedy. And I don't think it was really a very close personal relationship at all. I think that Orrin Hatch, coming from these very very humble Background was really felt it was kind of exciting and neat to be closely associated with this celebrity senator, Ted Kennedy. Uh, and I, 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 you know, I, I think that he he made more of that relationship than Kennedy did.
0: Whenever I saw Hatch, he was always impeccably dressed. You know, I mean, almost sometimes like a mannequin. But he was, you know, right. every, there was nothing out of place. And yet, as you say, I mean, he came from complete poverty and apparently never forgot that. But he always, he always, he just, he, it's like he needed to remind himself. I think that's right. I, I think that, you know, the way he was
5: turned out, you know, the very kind of impeccable quality, you know, the the, the, the very, you know, uh, elegant shirts and ties and and uh, and suits and so on. Uh, were sort of a, a badged you know and a, a, a kind of reassurance to himself that he had arrived he was a person of consequence he wasn 't some poor kid from pittsburgh uh anymore um, and uh so I, I think there was you know a, you know a, a pretty significant ego inflation uh, that was going on, and I think that 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 kind of caused him to present himself as sort of stuffy and, uh, and, and, and aloof. Um, and, uh, so, you know, he, you know, and I, but I think he tried, you know, in, in his own way to kind of maintain a common touch. He was always, you know, if, if anybody expressed interest in his music, he would always offer invitations to come in and listen to, uh, recordings of some of his music. He was very proud of that um you know, kind of suggested a sort of polish that I think he, he
0: really wanted to cultivate. You know, given the fact that he was not Mr. Charisma, you know, he didn't have much of a sense of humor, kind of stiff and everything. What do you think was behind his thinking when he ran for president?
5: Well, you know, I think that like so many senators, he kind of looked around and you know saw people who were, who were running for president or had aspirations for running for president, and came to the conclusion: well, if they can do it, why not me? And I think that's really what what prompts a, a lot of these a lot of people who have risen to the heights of senatorial um, uh, privilege and 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 prominence, think to themselves that uh, you know that you know the, the Senate has the nursery of presidents uh, has a long, has a long history. And, uh, you know, as, um, uh, uh, as Samuel Adams said that, uh, you know, that it's, it's one of the, uh, one of the dogmatic stations of American life. Uh, and I, I think he kind of saw it that way that, that, you know, he had risen to the, to, 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 you know, to the heights of prominence. He, he had you know, a lot of seniority in the Senate. He was, Able to do things, and uh, I think he got up one morning and said, "You know, I'll, you know, if uh, if you know any of these other people, you know, uh, you know
0: consider themselves good enough to run for president, uh, uh, I, I can certainly do it too." There's that famous line uh, that every morning a hundred senators look in the mirror and see a president, well, see, right? That's
5: exactly right. <laughs> I think I think that was that was an Orrin Hatch moment
0: when he was wrestling with retirement in 2018. President Trump was almost begging him to stay. I got got the sense that Trump didn't like the idea of Mitt Romney coming to the Senate. No, absolutely.
5: I mean, that was a very, very troublesome development for Trump, particularly because, you know, uh, of all all prominent Republicans, um, Mitt Romney was by far the most outspoken uh, against Trump. Uh, I mean, he left, you know, he he left nothing unsaid uh, in his indictment of of Trump's candidacy or possible uh, nomination uh, and very much on the record. So therefore, you know, and and he was, of course, the heir apparent to uh, uh, to Hatch's seat. Uh, So Trump did everything he could to persuade Hatch not to leave. Um, but I think maybe he just he'd gotten to the point where he wanted to he wanted to uh, hang up his his spurs, and it may and it may be that that at, as somebody who had these sort of um, occasional relationships uh, and sponsorships with with Democrats, I kind of saw that those opportunities
0: diminishing. Uh, with Trump in the White House, he also uh, he also promised in 2012 that he would not run again in 2018, and that the Salt Lake Tribune uh, said, "Look, it's time to go," and uh, they were pretty adamant about that. Right,
5: right. You know, that that was certainly certainly true, and and I think you know, I think his political antenna were sensitive enough to pick that up, and it wasn't just from the the media in Utah. Um, I think there was you know clearly a feeling that he's been
0: around too long. What do you think he'll be most remembered for?
5: Well, um, I mean, I think that the people who, you know, want to put a kind of positive interpretation of his career will look at things like the Ryan White uh, uh, HIV AIDS uh, Act that that uh, he was responsible for. I think that, you know, people in the religious community will probably um, consider his very active involvement in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, And there's a little bit, there's something for everybody in Orrin Hatch's career that they can point to as something that he did that was um, useful and uh, even important. Looking upon him charitably, you know, he was a conservative Republican who mostly voted conservative lines, but on occasion, would part company with his you know with with the party and and uh, work with her work with the democrat um but um i i think in in general i think i think they would they would see him as a kind of party stalwart um who mo- on most occasions could be counted on to support a republican presidents and to oppose with a particular degree of uh uh, of passion uh, initiatives by, by Democrats, especially involving social welfare issues.
0: Ross Baker is a professor of political science at Rutgers University and an expert on Congress. Ross, thanks for telling the story about Orrin Hatch. Always a pleasure, Ken. If you- That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. With Mother's Day coming up, don't you think Mom would love nothing more than a Political Junkie t-shirt or socks? If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram, at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon.